The reading today is Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 25, which is on page 59 of the Church Bibles. Moses flees to Midian. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to come and have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the word of the Lord. If you keep the uh, passage open, uh, it'll be helpful as we go through it. Let's get this going. Right, if uh, you were away last week, or if you're watching for the first time online, we're embarking on a series in Exodus. Uh, the first part of the book will take us through till um, December, and then we'll start, hopefully, God willing, the second section in the spring. Alright, I'm going to say two words to you. I wonder how you react. <clears throat> Driving test. <laughs> One person's very pleased. 
Uh, when I did them, notice the them, uh, it wasn't particularly uplifting or fulfilling. And as a teacher, I love setting tests, but this is a test like no other. And as a parent, I'm reliving this um, joy again. The driving test, I checked it out, um, having been a while since I did mine, just to see how it worked and went online. And I'd like to just uh, highlight some parts of the driving test. The first thing you need to do is turn up with your car or a car, just in case you forget. And then you have to prove your identity. And what really um, gets me is in a driving test, you make mistakes and you have to keep going. You make mistakes in driving tests. Hopefully you won't fail, but you can make mistakes, but you have to continue. And if you take a wrong turning, and my wife will um, sort of testify for this, if I say turn left, I actually mean right. And she does the transition automatically. Um, if you turn the wrong way, the driving instructor, and I hope Andy will confirm this, the driving instructor will not fault you, but will direct you back to the correct route. If they can. If they can, <laughs> unless you've really, really done it badly. <clears throat> but what, uh, what really I found difficult was the examiner's silence. Apart from redirecting you or hitting the dashboard or giving you a direction, the examiner's silence almost throughout the test really is quite off-putting. And I'm sure you, some of you will uh, also identify with that. But what is also interesting is the test is supposed to last 40 minutes. 40 is an interesting number, and we'll come back to that in a second. Now, Moses, I think, drove a chariot, but I may be stretching it a bit there. But uh, in this short passage, which is often glossed over to get to the, um, chap the important chapter three, Moses goes through a similar type of thing. He has to prove his identity. He makes some serious mistakes, but has to keep going. He takes what appears to be a major wrong turn into the desert. God in this chapter is silent, and this whole chapter takes place over a period of roughly 40 years. So what has this passage to teach us this morning? Let's ask God to help us and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit, our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It's always good to recap. Uh, before we start on what's going to be a mini exodus. Don't know if you can see all that. That was Bart's points last week. I just want to remind you of them. Um, in the first part of the book, in Exodus 1 and the start of Exodus chapter 2, we learn about God's faithfulness, even though it's a time of testing and it's a time of silence. God has promised Abraham a people, and in Exodus chapter 1, that promise is being fulfilled. The people of Israel are growing in number. It's also a time when faith is exercised in God, even though he hasn't spoken for 400 years. The chief, I've been told this, the chief midwives show incredible faith in protecting the young children, or the unborn, the Israel, Israelite unborn. And into that group of people being born is a vulnerable baby called Moses who will deliver his people. So we pick up the story in chapter 2 in your Bibles. It starts on um, verse 11. Moses has grown up. 
and he's going to start to change things. Now, going back to cars, I'm not a car fanatic, by the way, um, but when you get a new car, do you suddenly notice that everybody else is driving that type of car? Yeah? I, I had a Proton given to me. I didn't see one for years. They're great cars, but nobody else drove them. But often people, when they get a new car, they suddenly notice everybody else is driving them, apparently, but they're not. They're just more aware of them. Now, I was given Exodus to study, and I've suddenly become aware of Exodus stories throughout the Bible. Exodus is a theme that reoccurs throughout the Bible, if you look carefully. And in fact, our passage is an Exodus story, a mini-Exodus. There are Exoduses everywhere in the Bible. They're even in Genesis before Exodus. Let me just take you through it very briefly. This is what the passage is showing us today. In this passage in chapter 2, we see Moses is taken and stirred into action. He'll be stirred into action with the main exodus. This is a mini exodus in chapter 2. In the main exodus, he'll be stirred into action again. In chapter 2, a Hebrew is oppressed, and that is noticed by Moses. In the end of chapter 2 and on on into chapter 3 and to the rest of Exodus, we'll see the people of Israel are seen as oppressed, and that is noticed by God. In this chapter, an Egyptian is killed. In the main Exodus, Egyptians will be killed in the plagues and in the pursuit to the Red Sea. In this chapter in Exodus, Moses relieves one person's suffering temporarily by intervening. God will relieve the slavery suffering of his people in the main Exodus. In this chapter, Moses flees from Pharaoh on his own to the east. The whole Israelite nation will flee to the east in the main Exodus. And Moses is out there in the wilderness on his own for 40 years. It will be the whole nation of Israel in the, uh, in the desert for 40 years. So this is a foreshadowing, as we say in um, theological circles, this is a foreshadowing of the main Exodus in chapter 2, which is useful to give us a framework. So let's move into the passage. Moses was grown up, and we have to thank Stephen writing the New Testament when, or his speech to the Sanhedrin to know that Moses was 40 years old at this point in the story. He is well grown up. He is a man, and he's grown up, and his testing is about to start. Now, 40 years, as I said, is a time of testing in the Bible. Flood, 40 days. Um, the Philistines challenging um, Saul's army, where David and Goliath meet. How many days did they taunt the Israelites? Forty days. Again, the idea? Okay, New Testament, Jesus' temptation, 40 days. 40 days is often a symbol or symbolic of, of testing. And Moses is about to embark on a t- series of tests. First test, who are you? Seems simple. Some people hope in exams that they'll get a mark for that. Okay. Well, here we are. Moses, who are you? This is, this is not as straightforward as it appears. His name can be seen as an Egyptian name or a Hebrew name. He can live in both worlds with that name. Which world do you want to live in, Moses? Hebrew or Egyptian? 
luxury or suffering. You've been educated, again Stephen in his speech tells us that he had been educated, he had been given the wisdom, 40 years of wisdom of the Egyptians, he was powerful in speech and action. He appears to be quite a formidable figure. And he goes out, we read it in the verse, he goes out, he went out. The Hebrew word for this is not just going out to the shops, this is going out with intention to do something significant. He's not just popping out for a minute, he's popping out permanently from the palace. And it says that he watches the people. Again, this is not a UN fact-finding mission, he's just popped out to do some research. He's gone out with intention, he's gone out and he's been moved. He's not just collecting statistics, he's been moved by what he sees. Something is happening. Moses has been powerfully stirred. And the writer of the Hebrews says that he has chosen to reject the palace pleasures and treasures and the easy life and he's identifying with his people. This is a major step. It's not a case of he went out and then decided to stay. He he has intention to do something. Now, we are tempted to stay in our private palaces. It's so easy to stay indoors and stay away from the world and not engage in the world and acknowledge our identity. Moses is acknowledging who he belongs to. He belongs to God's people, and he is acknowledging it. He's not going back to the palace. He wants to act. He wants to be a mover and shaker, as one writer put it. He wants to change things. And he tries it. He tries the test of protection and judgment of his people. He moves straight into action. He's been put in a unique position. He spent 40 years in the Egyptian court, learning their wisdom, but he's also had his mother with him teaching the promises of God. And he clearly sees himself in a unique position to make changes. He wants to make change. He might even think he's the second Joseph. He can release his people, not from starvation, but from slavery. Or, looking ahead a bit, he could be a prototype of the slave leader Spartacus, leading a slave uprising. He's seen the people suffering, and he's decided to do something about it. He takes the initiative... This is something we tend to, in our society, reward. Take the initiative. Do something. And Moses does something. But it all goes rather badly. We have a crime scene. He seeks to correct injustice, but things get out of control. This is a very awkward situation we find ourselves in. Moses has the title lawgiver later on. And what does the sixth commandment say? You shall not kill. This is quite awkward, isn't it? This is an awkward piece of scripture. And the bad news is the Hebrew word used here is not very specific. It it indicates killing, but it doesn't tell us if it's intentional or accidental. Stephen in, again, you must read Acts chapter 7. Stephen in recounting this story says that Moses is a defender and an avenger. So he sees it as not a problem. But it does make us pull up short and think, what's going on here? We can't sweep this under the carpet. He swept the body under the sand. We cannot sweep this incident under the carpet. We would love to clear Moses. We'd like to have a court case, please. Can we have some evidence? Can we have um, 
a recounting of this in more detail to see that Moses actually acted in self-defense. But we can't. This is a 3,000-year-old cold case. This, we can't go back and have a courtroom um, sort of reenactment. And what's made interestingly about this is he looks before he acts. Although he's acting quite, um, you could argue, impulsively, he still looks. Now, what does that look mean? Is he looking to make sure no one sees him? Or is he looking to see if anyone else will intervene? He doesn't want to have the, what we call the bystander syndrome of um, not doing anything while everybody else doesn't do anything. It is so hard to untangle this and know exactly what's gone on here. We're, we're not given a clear account. So we have to put it to one side, but we have to acknowledge this is, this is tough. This is a tough piece of scripture. He hides the body, comes back the next day and he sees a dispute, social justice. He's really, he's really tuned into social justice, Moses. He wants to make a better world, and he intervenes, but they don't take his advice, they don't take his intervention, and they reveal that although he probably thought there were no witnesses, there was one, the Israelite, who was saved from the beating. The news has got out, they know he's killed an Egyptian, he's intervening, and they also know that he is using the Egyptian way. He is still walking like an Egyptian. Sorry, that's a musical reference, if anybody gets that. I had to put one into the sermon. I got it in. Excellent. He's still walking in the ways of the Egyptians, which is about power and oppression. And they think, if we, if we follow him, he'll put himself in the position of power and he'll oppress us. We won't be fooled by this man, we're not going to follow you. There's going to be no slave uprising, there's going to be no civil disobedience. We're not following you, Moses. Go away. This is, this is a hard thing for Moses. He thought he was doing the right things. He thought he got it right. He thought he was making the world a better place. And this is a, a challenge to us as Christians. We believe the world should be a better place. We believe we should be active in the world but it shows how careful we must be before we intervene, how prayerfully we must act, because Moses has acted in what he thinks is God's will, but he's not acted in God's way. We've got to be so careful. We have to be prayerful when we act in the world. Now, there were some heroes last week. I want to go back to them, the midwives. They, last week, were disobedient, weren't they? They didn't do as Pharaoh said, and they lied to him. But their action was affirmed. They feared and awed God before Moses, sorry, before Pharaoh. They were more concerned about pleasing God than pleasing Pharaoh, and they acted on this. And looking at the midwives and looking at the, the passage in here, Moses doesn't seem to scrub up that well. However, he does because the writer to the Hebrews says this. Although Moses flees, having killed the Egyptian, there's evidence that he is fearing God and not fearing man. Would he have got, could we have had a court where he could have been acquitted? Was that the way that things worked in ancient Egypt? Did they have courtrooms like we have today? The answer obviously is no. If Moses had stayed and faced Pharaoh, he would have been killed. His action was an attack on Pharaoh and his, his authority, his state, 
We think he was a slave driver. That's an officer of, of, the, of the Pharaoh. He's attacked Pharaoh indirectly. Pharaoh cannot let this Israelite get away with it. It will challenge his authority. Pharaoh mustn't allow it. Pharaoh must kill Moses if Moses is brought into his um, sort of court. Not courtroom, but court. So there's no nice courtroom scene for Moses. And he flees partly because he doesn't want to die, but also because he, he feels God is telling him to leave, to leave Egypt. He turns his, own, turns his back on his own efforts. He turns away from what he sought to do on his own. And he now goes to Midian. He has realized that he hadn't done God's will and hadn't done things in God's way. So he's failed, he's, the identity test he's passed, but he's failed looking after the people of God and judging over them. He's failed two tests now. He's about to take a third test in the wilderness. Remember Ray Mears? Or are you a Bear Grylls fan? I don't know which one you go for. He is going to do a wilderness test. And it's at a well and it's, convert, it's concerning shepherds and um, the family of a priest. This time, he passes the test. He's actually passed the test, he's, that part of the test. He's, he's done the identity okay, he's failed the protecting and judging the people of God, but he's managed to pass this test where he protects these women from these shepherds. And he's allowed to stay with these people and he becomes a shepherd. This is quite astounding because Egyptians detest shepherds, we're told. He's gone from palace to wilderness to low status job. I think shepherds are great, by the way. I don't think you should detest them. But he's, he's taken himself out of privilege into um, sort of the wilderness and into a low status job. And he's in the wilderness. He is a nomad now. He is a wanderer. He is not going to be um, living in a palace anytime soon. And he's, he, he practices 40 years of field craft. He spent 40 years learning statecraft. It's now field craft that he's got to learn. And the, the wilderness, I'm told, is a great place for meditation and prayer. A lot of um, early Christians lived in the desert so they could devote themselves to prayer and not be distracted. He's going to do that, hopefully. He's going to learn the geography of the area, which could be useful later. He's going to have a family. Families are great testing grounds for leadership, as I'm sure many of us will attest to. And a shepherd is symbolic as well as a function that he will live through the rest of his life. So, Moses' test in the desert, in the wilderness. And towards the end of the passage, Moses moves to one side and God is mentioned again. If we go back to Exodus 2, some interesting things happen. Moses is going to step to one side and God will return, or God is spoken about at the end of the passage, 23 to 25. So, in Exodus 1, the promise of people had been fulfilled. The people of God grew in number but the promise of the place, the land, is unfulfilled. This is now going to start to be actioned, and we see this at the end of the chapter. God is 
God is seeing the people. He already sees them. He's omniscient. He doesn't suddenly notice them. He's already seen them. He knows them. He knows them intimately. But now he looks at them. Moses looked out and acted. At the start of the chapter, God is going to start to act now. He sees them in a way that Moses hasn't seen them before. And Moses' domestic bliss, he's got a happy family. It's about to be shaken. How that's shaken, we'll find out next week. God is about to act. So, what do we get from this passage? Firstly, we must notice something called Christology. Moses is pointing us to Christ. And in this one chapter, he points us to Christ. Moses left the palace. Christ left heaven to be with us. Moses identifies with his people. Christ identifies with us. Moses didn't do the Father's will in the Father's way, but Christ did the Father's will in the Father's way. Christ spends time in the wilderness, just as Moses has, but only 40 days, not 40 years. And Moses will deliver the people from slavery Christ will deliver the people from the slavery of sin. So, Exodus chapter 2, almost done. I started off with a driving analogy. Analogies don't always work. They're not perfect. There is one problem with my analogy about the driving test and Moses' life. Normally, when you take a driving test, you've had lessons. That's the way I think Andrew likes it. Do lessons first. And then take the test. What's happened here? He's been given the tests and he learns the lessons after the test, not before. So this may be the way that God will work with you and I. Sometimes we learn the lessons afterwards, not before. So let's just quickly run through again. Do we acknowledge our Christian identity? Do we stand with other Christians? Do we stay in our private palaces where it's safe and don't stand up for Christ in the wider world? It's not easy. Moses had to be determined to do it, to stand up for God's people. How do we know when to act on our Christian identity? How do we know when it's God's will and how do we know we're doing things in God's way? Can I encourage you to pray? Prayer is a way of discerning that. Do we accept, like Moses, that we don't belong to this world, we're strangers, we're wanderers, we're nomads, we're pilgrims, our true home is in heaven? And how do we deal with silence? Silence was 400 years of silence in the, uh, in the period between Genesis and Exodus, when the people didn't appear to have any direct word from God. How do we deal? God has given us our our instructions. He's sent his, his son, his final word. We're now living in a period of silence. How do we cope with that silence? Can I um, recommend to Peter as a great way to come to terms with that? Look at the chapter 3, the day of the Lord, as we live through this silence until we go to be with Christ in the new kingdom. So, a short passage but there's so much in it, we thankfully have been able to spend time looking at the Moses Exodus, the mini Exodus, that leads us on to the bigger Exodus, the main Exodus, coming to a sermon near you next week. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for Moses. We thank you that uh, he was willing to act. And we do thank you that uh, you still work through him, even though he made mistakes. We thank you that you still work through us, even though we make mistakes. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would seek to do your will and we would do it in your way and in your timing. Help us, Lord, to seek to know what your will is, when you would want us to act, and how you would want us to act, Lord. Help us to prayerfully seek these things out from you so that we may be clear members of your kingdom working in this world and waiting for your return. In Jesus' name, amen.